Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier. Welcome back to the Minutes from Latvia podcast. My name is Mike Collier. This is brought to you by Latvian Public Media, LSM. I'm back in the famous stroke infamous pod. It's another warm, sunny day here in Riga. I have someone in here with me. She's incredibly busy, so I'm quite lucky to secure half an hour of her time at least. So I'm going to call this maybe our power pod or our, uh, you know, um, business pod. Uh, her name is Baiba Rubesa. She's one of the best known business people in Latvia and in the Baltic States uh, in its entirety. I wonder, Baiba, could you just tell us a little bit of your background, please? Well, uh, I'm uh, a Latvian Canadian who grew up in Germany to a large extent and moved to Latvia 25 years ago. It depends actually on the audience that I'm talking to, that I would, you know, sort of tailor make this introduction to. We have extremely intelligent uh, audience. Both yes. of them have very high IQs, um, yes. but they're interested to know about you in whatever you think is the most interesting yeah. aspect. I think um, what may be most interesting is that in the course of my lifetime, and I'm over 60, I have lived in over six countries and had a responsibility for about 42 different countries in different aspects, whether it is at a business level, of course, predominantly here in the Baltic countries or around the Baltic Sea, but also in far-flung places like the Caucasus, even some parts of Africa and places like that. I am probably best known in Latvia, or for that matter in the Baltic, for having worked for the pristine and wonderful Norwegian company called Statoil as the brand fades away. Other fuel it, retailers are available, I should say. In the fuel, well, you know, now a, yes, now a company from Quebec, you know. Circle K, which yeah. is causing a bit of um, controversy here. Although I do like the fact that, sorry to interrupt you here, it's but okay. a little bit of current uh, affairs yeah. interjection. Statoil was always kind of at the top of the branding lists or like trusted brands, uh, recognizable brands in Latvia. And they've well been sold and rebranded as Circle K, which people aren't too impressed with. But I do like that the Latvian sense of humor kicks in and people are kind of popularly calling it Cupless now, which means like a hose <laughs> using the garden. Yeah, but upless also means circle. Yeah. And car, car you know, in upless. front of it, car upless <laughs> is a very uh, cool, I think, alliteration. Having been very integral to establishing Statoil's brand and a lot of services in the many years that I've served Statoil. I'm extremely proud of the brand recognition, uh, both in terms of recognition as well as very positive values that were established over the years. In fact, let's say a group of um, very dedicated people that have worked with Statoil are going to, we have created a festival for ourselves one day to bid farewell to the Statoil <laughs> brand uh, in the Baltic countries. Sort of Viking countries. funeral. <laughs> Something like that. As a matter of fact, quite precisely something like that. But I must say Circle K is was the right step for Statoil to take in terms of investments and uh, developing as a fuel retailer and, and a convenience retailer. Because I had the great privilege of actually working in Statoil headquarters 
sort of when this last part happened and when the new investments came and business changes. And I think that the direction that business and, and uh, economies and societies take, they change much faster than any of us would like them to or that we would like to get used to, uh, which is, of course, one of the great challenges that I have right now in leading probably the most interesting, complex project in the Baltic countries, and I'd say one of the more complex in terms of infrastructure development and a cross-border project in Europe, namely Rail Baltica. Yeah, we'll move on to Rail Baltica in a few minutes, but uh, your mention of working in various countries, including Azerbaijan, and in industries like oil, which are, you know, regarded as real kind of last sure. bastions of uh, men's business, as it were. I well, mean, prior to that, has been automobiles as well. Yeah. So, uh, yes, I have spent most of my career actually in male-dominated environments. I mean, I'm assuming that's not a, a conscious decision on your part, or no. is it? I mean, No, it, <laughs> it was definitely not a conscious decision, but it so happened. And it brings I th- I, other women that I've spoken to that have worked in very male-dominated industries, we all have a perception of what that's like. And I'd say it takes a certain kind of a personality to be able to float with ease through those circumstances. But that's a question of cultural behavior, of expectations, of a lot of different things. But it's never, uh, I've never seen it as a limitation, probably because my parents were rather liberal and supportive and never emphasized gender Mm -hmm. uh, in any way uh, as being a limitation uh, to being able to achieve things. It may not be a limitation, but I would assume that you had to evolve, you know, certain strategies for dealing with people who are sort of patriarchal in their outlook or who are surprised when there's a woman on the board and so on. I mean, have you got any tips for any uh, women businessmen out there based on your experience? I mean, is it just treating different people in different ways or do you have to kind of very early on establish that, that, you know, you should be treated exactly the same as anyone else? Well, I think that the best advice I would give to anybody, male or female, is be yourself and be comfortable with yourself in what you are doing. The um, because I think that if you lead with what you prefer and what your where your strengths are, you will be more successful. I've met a whole lot of women, as well in um, business or in let's say societal life, NGO life that can be as demanding and challenging as any male. I know that I am seen as a person who's very good at observing behavior and observing and being able to work in complex societies. Of course you learn to deal with different environments. I mean, when I moved to Azerbaijan, the first assumption was I was somebody's secretary whose main task it is to serve coffee. Yeah. Well, the first time you serve the coffee, and then the next time you ask the minister, perhaps he would serve the coffee to me. <laughs> uh, but after you've, in a very kind way, explained also what your background is, and you need to have respect, actually, for the culture that you are in. I think that our, if anything in the environment I'm in right now, it's less about patriarchal societies or very male-dominated societies. It's more about a society and political transition, uh, certainly from Homo Sovieticus to the Homo European, if you want to call it that, 
and somewhere in the middle, and also a transition to a very different kind of society that is driven by technological change, uh, artificial intelligence, which is right here in front of us and about to change our lives in in Well, I hope you're not talking about me there. uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, but with regard to the gender balance, I mean, would you say is the situation in Latvia? Because I noticed that doing my uh, small amount of research that I do before these podcasts, on the supervisory board and the management board of Rail Baltica, there's only one other woman out of eight people in total, apart from yourself. I mean, that's not really good enough, is it? Sure. I think that, you know, in the Baltic states in general, especially in Estonia and Latvia, if you were to take all kinds of statistics and, and views of of uh, women in, um, let's say, leadership positions, you would actually find everybody very surprised how many women are, quote-unquote, in charge, yeah. especially in Latvia. I personally believe in quota systems for boards. I used not to believe in them when I was 30. By now, I understand <laughs> they're necessary because otherwise the the way that um, individuals are chosen are, are very uh, unique and usually very male-driven uh, for whatever reason. Mm. I mean, what sort of quota do you think it would, would be... Well, usually it's 50-50, but, you know, I had a management board at one point where we were predominantly women and one man, and I said, well, next recruitment we're doing, it has to be a male. At the end of the day, when you are looking at a composition of any kinds of teams, be they boards or or project teams, you're looking at diversity, no matter what kind of diversity is, that would bring strength to it from, from different places. So I wouldn't mandate that everywhere you definitely have to have, mm. uh, you know, 50-50 gender balance. It doesn't work that that way? How do you deal with age? How do you deal with nationality? How do you deal with religion? Uh, how do you deal with race? You know, all of these kinds of things. Any, any, so you have to understand the, this, the society you're in. What I find very uh, telling about Latvia in particular, if you look at any kind of feminist uh, literature or studies uh, around that, of course, one would say that uh, one of the reasons there are so many women in the positions that they are in in, in Latvia, let's say, is because the men don't want them. Women take on jobs that men don't prefer to do. If we look at nurses and secretaries and administrative assistants and all of these kinds of things, it's extremely rare that you will find a male in it. And so my question would be, where are all the men in Latvia to give us women a run for some of the positions <laughs> that we have. Well, I think know. that's a very good way of looking at it. Yeah. Uh, there was one other thing before we get mm-hmm. into Rail Baltica, uh, probably for the rest of the, um, the, mm-hmm. the podcast, looking at your CV, I mean, you're involved with three or four other companies as well. I mean, you're owner of some, you're sitting on the board of others. And yet Rail Baltica is a massive, complex, I mean, you've already said, a project of gargantuan proportions, really. I mean, do you have time to do other things as well? Shouldn't you just be concentrating on Real Baltic? Because I can see that that's a criticism that is going to be put at your door, really. Sure, it's already levied that criticism. The companies, the two tiny little companies that I own, are about as latent as as they can possibly be <laughs> because they were created uh, after I left Stuttgart to be able really to work on my own in, in consulting and other things. And I sometimes do some consulting, very minor consulting in that context. In terms of Latvenergo and being on the supervisory board of Latvenergo, it doesn't take up that much time. And on top of that, when you are in a position, when you're in a position of management as I am today, it is actually partially an advantage uh, to being on a supervisory board 
position. Supervisory boards shouldn't be full-time jobs every day, uh, you know, as much as any uh, management board member's job may or may not be. For that, I certainly have time. I have time to serve on the boards of, of uh, Providus and, and uh, Quoknesses Fonds as well. Uh, so the time is there. There's very little time left for my own self, if anything. Uh, my beloved other sees me rarely, you know, when the season is really on. So uh, I think that's where the challenge is right now. I have an agreement to serve for three years. I have another year and a half to go. In in terms of Rail Baltica, it really is a 24-7 job. And I tried to fit in the other things somewhere else. I do not believe in dedicating one's life to one project or one company. I think it serves no good and no purpose. Ultimately, life's too short for that. But the journey that I'm on right now uh, is really to ensure that Rail Baltica happens and that it happens in the way that it's in, it was intended to by its founding fathers. Uh, who are and this, mothers. Uh, no, in this case, they are genuinely founding fathers. And the main founding fathers are the prime ministers in uh, 2014 of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, uh, Ansip Domrovskis and Kubilius in that sequence. The dream team. Seem, yeah, they signed the agreements, but it really is a big thanks to Seem Kalas, who was then transport commissioner in the EU for actually furthering this. And thereafter come the strong women, <laughs> uh, whether it's from the European Union, Catherine Troutman, who's the coordinator of the so-called North Sea Baltic uh, uh, Baltic uh, uh, network here, corridor, sorry, not, not network, or myself for that matter. Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier. Welcome back to the Minutes from Latvia podcast. My name is Mike Collier. This is brought to you by Latvian Public Media and the LSM English News Service. I'm joined today by Baiba Rubesa, who is the head honcho, the chairperson of Rail Baltica. Now, we've mentioned Rail Baltica a few times. We haven't yet specified exactly what it is, other than it's the largest infrastructure project that the Baltic states have undertaken since the restoration of independence. So, Biber, in two minutes, could you tell us everything we need to know about Rail Baltica, please? Rail Baltica is actually the Baltic's project of the century, not just of independence. We are building in the Baltic countries approximately 870 kilometers of electrified European gauge, which means 1435 millimeter tracks from Tallinn to the Lithuanian Polish border at an estimated cost of 5.8 billion euro, which will be financed at this point in time, 85% by a European Union grant mechanism called Connecting Europe Facility, and the other 15% by each of the Baltic governments. The project is being delivered by the company that I am in charge of called RB Rail, which is a joint venture that uh, the ministries of transportation of Lithuanian, uh, Lithuania and Latvia founded and the Ministry of Economy of Estonia. Uh, so we have three separate shareholders and it is our task to deliver the project in the Baltic countries. The question that uh, predictable journalists such as myself are always asking is when are the trains going to start rolling and when's the building going to start building? Well, the trains are expected to start rolling at this point in time in 2026 from, from Tallinn station. 
some construction is already being prepared in different in the three different countries it will not be a systematic starting from the north and then we will roll the railway down south it doesn't work quite that way but the great majority of construction will be seen starting really with 2020 2021 and where is the, i mean you mentioned <clears throat> to an extent already where the driving force is coming in that the, we had these three previous prime ministers of the baltic states who kind of got things up and running but is the enthusiasm still there amongst the administrations and the uh, the people who are involved in the project now? Because it seems there was an awful, awful lot of jockeying for position before we got to what seemed like a bit of a watershed moment when you had a Rail Baltica forum in April this year, which was kind of a sort of unveiling. It seemed everything seemed a bit more real after that. Beforehand, there had been just from looking at from my side this feeling that it could be like the Ignalina nuclear project or something. You know, it, people would be saying that we're about to start building for years and years and years and then nothing actually happens. But there's a bit of a rambling uh, point I'm making here, but are you 100% sure that we've really got the momentum to, to do this now? You know, I had the privilege of presenting the project to the G7 transport ministers right before midsummer this summer. And the transport commissioner of Europe asked me the very same question. Okay. Do we actually have traction? Do we really have traction? I would say yes, to the extent of 85%. There's always room for change. And that is based on experience from other cross-border projects. This is the most complex one in Europe because three countries are involved. To date, there have never been more than two. And there's an extremely strong move and partially, I would say, also a strong will or at least enough will uh, for Finland and, and Poland to join as shareholders as well. You know, where there's big money, there are a lot of sharks uh, in the pools. Our three countries are not terribly used to constructive collaboration. And especially in infrastructure in Europe, I've discovered it's a very conservative business environment to be in and to move it from, especially in railways, from where it has been to where one should be maybe in the 21st century is quite a task. Our specific project, I would say yes, has the necessary enthusiasm. I have a fabulous team already on board that 30 people, I mean, we should probably be way over 50, but more 30 in RB Rail, but there are other pockets of people that are engaged in the three countries. Although, you know, 30 people and you're talking about a 5.8 billion euro project, that doesn't actually seem that, that many, does it? Well, we were three a year ago. So, <laughs> you know, we're growing and we will be very many more. So the uh, growth is extremely swift and extremely immense. Also because all three countries realize that uh, as Director General of the European Commission, Henry Kolal, I would say, Transport Commission would say, use it or lose it. You know, and there's money to be used mm. and there are certain ways of using it and there have to be certain standards for it. So the first thing that we're doing is actually setting up a strong procurement environment to see that we can actually deliver the project in a transparent quality and economic fashion i think what's I important should make a declaration at this point is that is that uh, i follow these uh, procurement uh, things quite closely because my sister is actually a civil engineer and i there forward them all to her saying you know you should bid on this <laughs> she says it's a long way to commute <laughs> yeah but the you know interest is extremely high prior to this uh, uh, forum in in april we could see that 
there was sort of, uh, I'd say, latent interest, but now people are really applying to the procurements, which means that people believe that this will actually happen. And I am determined to make sure that it happens. We need to reach what is called project maturity, which means things are really happening in a mm-hmm. certain way by the end of this year. And we still have a couple of, let's say, loops to go through to ensure that and dot the I's and cross the T's to make sure that it actually happens to be able to go forward. We are not building infrastructure per se. We are really building, I would say, an avenue for new economic development. The European Union is strong behind the project, also because they talk about building the missing link in Northeast Europe, which includes Finland linking to Poland, for example, and many other parts of it. So a large part of what we focus on is not only the technical building of the railway, but also what economic benefit it can and social benefit it can and will bring to the region. But why aren't Poland and Finland on board already? I mean, what extra do you have to do to get them to commit to it? Or is it just they're just going to hang around until they see some really compelling economic benefit and then they'll jump in? Well, I don't think it's, you know, things are never that simple. Let, Let us remember that infrastructure is a very national, I'd say, obsession and actually the right of each nation to deal with their own infrastructure. Finland is more interested in joining as a shareholder. It's a question also of what the shareholders agreement provides for. Mm -hmm. And in our shareholders agreement, both Finland and Poland are observers of the project, which means that if they wish, they are invited to come to each supervisory board meeting and and follow the the project, which Finland has done over the past year. Poland, you know, is a really big country. And things happen differently in Poland just because it's a really big country, just like Germany is a really big country. And we've had visits with the Poles, uh, at least from the joint venture side this year. And since then, there is a much more constructive environment around it. I will be in different places in Poland already in September. And Poland is already building their part of Rail Baltica from Warsaw going east. So we need to make sure that we will actually meet at the border. Okay, so it's kind of part of the grand Rail Baltica vision, but it's not actually part of the project at the moment it's on a national level and you can in Poland it, it is yeah. but 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 it is but everybody is um, uh, dependent on each other you know the the rail Baltica will not stop at the Latvian or the Lithuanian Polish border or you know or whichever well, way I hope not because there's not much there <laughs> yeah well, you know so there are a lot of codependencies uh, and I have no doubt that this will work when I talk about Finland and Poland joining its as shareholders Another thing that is inevitably coming up all the time is like these huge projects, they inevitably, it seems, maybe you'll correct me, they always go over time, they always go over budget. Is there enough kind of wiggle room in your arrangements that, I mean, it's something that no one who's in charge of a project ever wants to say, yo, it's going to happen, but no one is really surprised. And I think people are a bit more forgiving as long as they see real progress being made. So when you were talking about this use it or lose it kind of attitude, there is a bit of a danger that if it goes a little bit too long, then technically you have to lose the money, whereas that could actually cause more loss in the long run than uh, just giving a bit more wiggle room to the project, could it not? All I mean, I'm just, cross- I guess what I'm asking is... All just- cross-border projects in Europe. I haven't heard of one yet that has been quote-unquote on time. Yeah. Because there are a lot of parts to this game. 
One of them is, of course, public procurement processes. And in public procurement processes, it is possible that any single procurement can be challenged, which means delayed, which is why in the European Union, there is a lot of discussion right now about how to facilitate, for example, this aspect alone for the four cross-border projects. There are a lot of other aspects, but this is one of the key aspects. The other one is, I would say, whether the shareholders and the beneficiaries comply with what has been agreed on on how to implement any given project in the European Union. And this is the responsibility, really, of the governments of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia to make sure that those that they have charged with delivering the project will actually comply with the agreements to ensure that things happen on time. I think that we still have a little bit of a way to go so that things are easier to do. But I must say my learning is, in spite of having many other multinational cross-border projects before, working with three very different governments and also very three different legislative environments. Mm -hmm. And I find every day brings a surprise as to where there is a deviation to something (laughs) in Latvia and Lithuania or Estonia. And it doesn't mean better or worse. It just means different. So aligning around some things is a little bit harder and it takes a longer time. On top of that, we have the the good news is that each country has its own national language, but our common language is English. And uh, for any documentation and any processes, we need to make sure that we have very good English speakers. And then the next question is, how much does or doesn't get translated for public procurement yeah. purposes, for example, into English? That alone can delay this project by quite a bit. So we're working on each of the details to see that we can reach the 2026 uh, deadline. Well, I can recommend some excellent translators after the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, there were two other things I really wanted to ask you. One is that you know, Latvians love to talk about how green they are and how in tune with the environment and nature and eco-friendly and all this kind of business. And yet it seems to me that the sort of environmental aspect of uh, Rail Baltica really hasn't Sort of, as you mentioned earlier, gained that much traction. It all seems to be about, well, constructing this is going to destroy certain habitats, whereas uh, maybe in countries with more extensive rail networks, rail is regarded as kind of an e- ecologically friendly uh, mode of transport in that, you know, you don't have thousands of cars on the, on the on trucks on the street instead. I mean, do you think this has been undersold a little bit in the Latvian context? I think that in um, all three countries, and I would also include Poland in this, Uh, so all four countries, communication around environment, first of all, is different. Each one is different uh, because each society interprets environment. What what does that mean differently or ecology Mm. or sustainability for that matter differently? Our populations look at railways as being predominantly a freight carrier. If you talk to the UK or France or Germany, you will talk to uh, societies that also demonstrably are predominantly passenger carriers. Mm. And in the the idea of moving trucks, moving actually transportation from road to rail, this environmental dimension gets lost. It's more about business. Will my neighbor, will my relative lose that trucking business, for example. So there are clear vested interests. Of course. I think every one of them is a clear vested interest. At the same time, 
in all of the four countries, there are environmental challenges, you know, for protected areas, et cetera, et cetera, to be addressed. But I don't think we see yet the balance between how to ensure that we have an effective and, and responsible railway and one that is electrified and therefore reduces CO2 impact significantly uh, for the European Union and also so for our region. But I think we still have a communication job to do. First, mm. we need to make sure that the project is actually happening. And finally, I've seen you know the simulations, the, the plans, the costings and everything which have been produced for Rail Baltica. Are there any other projects around the world that you can look at and you can say it'll be, you know, not identical, but a bit like this? So it'll look a bit like this, the speeds will be a bit like this, the convenience will be a bit like this. You know, just to, to help myself and others kind of picture it a bit more accurately. Frankly, I think it will be a sum of many parts. <laughs> uh, that means it'll be a little bit like in in uh, Stockholm or in you know in Sweden. Uh, it'll be a little bit like in Germany. I'd say more. I would look more towards Germany. We will not have the high speeds of France, or for that matter, of HS2. But it'll be a bit like HS2. You know, in a way. I know that there will be a paradigm shift in activity once it's completed and mainly between the capitals and mainly in economic uh, uh, activity and just people coming, uh, you know, mm. taking that two hour or one and a half hour trip between the, the capital cities or the larger cities. Uh, so I cannot tell you what it will look like. And frankly, 10 years from now, uh, this is my very personal opinion. I wonder what the electrification will really look like because we know that the uh, Dutch have now connected wind turbines to provide for the electricity for their railway. If Tesla is more successful with the tiles that they're developing, for example, for roofs, should, would the electricity be solar panels that are on top of the trains? Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, uh, so one of our biggest challenges is being able to be modern or at least kind of contemporary. Yeah. yeah, sort of a future driven. Can we deliver a future driven project with the thinking of, I'd say, the beginning of the 21st century? For some, it's also the end of the 20th century and, and uh, make sure that we are actually viable. Uh, going forward. Now, usually then the next thing, question that I'm then asked is, so why aren't we building the Hyperloop, you know, instead of building a railway? And all engineers today, the answer is, all engineers of today say this is unproven technology. Sorry, uh, but I'm a bit ignorant. Hyperloop? What is a Hyperloop? Hyperloop is something also that uh, Elon Musk has developed in, in oh, California. Which, which is basically well an a idea and of a tube. Imagine a tube uh, where you get inside something that I would say would be similar to a rocket. Yeah. And with, you know, high pressure. Well, good uh, luck selling that to the Latvian public, I think. It would be well, you know, yeah, they're testing it in California, you know. So, so like, essentially you're going to fire people kind of down like a that. gun. Yeah, something like that. But that's a very simplistic way of putting at it. But it's a very future-driven technology that will then claim, as many futurologists say, that we will no longer need railways 30 years from now. But it wouldn't have windows, would it? I mean, what no, a tragedy that would be. No, it won't. It Surely won't. part of the, yeah. the beauty of rail travel is being able to sit there and watch exactly. beautiful countries go past. Yeah, exactly. Well, Biber, thank you very much for joining me in the pod today. Thank you for inviting um, me. I'm looking forward to Rail Baltica because I have a, a plan in place already. In 2034, I want to catch Rail Baltica from Tallinn to Berlin. 
because in 1934, one of my favorite writers, Graham Greene, did exactly that. He had right. lunch in、uh, Tallinn, changed trains at Riga in the evening, and had breakfast the next morning in Berlin, missing Latvia's coup d'état on the way. So that'll be something for me to look forward to. Thanks again for joining me in the pod. I think I'll probably have you back at some point during the next ten years, if we're still going,、um, well, to give us an update. Next year and a half is okay. Okay, okay.、Uh, until then, well, goodbye to listeners out there, and I'll be back again in another couple of weeks with another minutes from Latvia podcast. Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier, produced by Renard Steimans for Latvian Public Media. Find out more at www.lsm.lv.